I'm not here to poke holes in suspended disbelief. Anyway, they see some weird shit. They decide to make a baby. Thou Merkin merchant. Who gives a fuck? Oh my god, we're just gonna start calling you Damien Yeltsin's billboards. Well, you know, uh, I really like it here. Uh, it's kind of nice, and uh, it's not as cold as back home, and the soil is a lot better. So yeah, sure, I think we're gonna settle. If I'm a peasant boy who grabs a sword out of a stone, yeah, I'm able to open people up. You will, yeah. Anytime I hit them with it, right? Yeah. So my cleave landing will make me a cavalier. Good day, sir. If Siskel thought it was empty-headed plebeian trash, it was probably <laughs> really good at groove on it. <laughs> because cannibalism and murder. Pull back just a little bit and build walls to keep out the redheads. Authorial intent doesn't exist. Some people stand up and wipe their butts. Some people stay seated and wipe their butts. Like, it just... Of time, where we connect nerdery to the real world. My name is Ed Blaylock. I'm a world history teacher here in Northern California. Uh, currently, uh, actually teaching in person again for the first time in a year, uh, and it has not been nearly the disaster I had feared it was going to be. Uh, I'm still not entirely thrilled with the situation, but it's going far better than anticipated. And how about you? Well, I'm Damien Harmony. I'm a Latin teacher up here in Northern California. I also have gone back to in-person teaching. However, I am not back in person. I am, in fact, still a box on a monitor in front of kids who today were housed in an auditorium, uh, distanced. It's okay. Yeah. But uh, with a substitute who watches okay. over them for me. So okay. uh, it is essentially the same thing I've been doing for a while. Yeah, um, quite honestly, and that's that's okay. It's just at a just slightly different timeline, and uh, no, th- that hasn't been a disaster. And a lot of my teacher friends have been very much rejuvenated by getting to see the littles, and I miss them terribly. But uh, I know my history, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's 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 not a good one, especially looking yeah. at, at Brazil. So now I've dated this uh, particular podcast. Yes, uh, as yes. the the Brazil. Uh, Variant has not yet come through and ravaged the lands all the way up through Iowa, as yeah. we all knew it would, uh, yeah. leaving just a small band of teenagers to resist uh, the hordes of Trumpanzies uh, who have come in. Uh, on... Magadon. Yeah, Magadon. Yeah. Okay, yeah. there we go. So I was not sure. It was like, okay, <laughs> yeah. is he going where I think he's yep. going? Yep. Yes. yes, yes, he is. Indeed. Okay. Iowa, so. wait. Okay. <laughs> all right. Yeah. So... Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's that's the thing that's happening as okay. of late. So right. yeah, um, no real personal stories to tell. Let's just jump right into this. Okay, yeah, because right. um, for those of you on the other end of this podcast, um, <laughs> I I uh, Dam- Damien and I were having a conversation uh, when when I got over here to record, and um, Damien tell him tell him about the the calculation of the the mass of notes that you've written up if you were to take my notes and you put them word to word end to end with a space between each word yeah times new roman 12 point font normal yeah. right yeah um you would cover more than two football fields yeah it would it would stretch to the length of of over two yeah. football fields yeah. 
in 12 point font yeah. ladies and gentlemen so i'm not 100 percent sure what tonight is going to be about <laughs> damien's been playing this really close to the chest <laughs> um but i know that whatever it is uh it's, I'm it's never going doing it again ever ever <laughs> again and it's going to be epic so yeah best we get started amen to that uh without our usual uh farting around yeah. so so how do you want to start? What are we talking about? What are we doing? Uh, well, I'll start with the title. Uh, How Michel Foucault was the harbinger to pro wrestling in the late 1990s. Okay. Uh, or okay. the convulsion of white reactionary politics that led to a break it because we lost it mentality. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I, I assume uh, the, the Foucault you're referring to here is uh, Foucault's pendulum. No, Michel Foucault. Uh, Michel Foucault. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, okay. it might have been I didn't study. The dude wrote a ton. We're talking about okay. the the scholar uh, who yeah. died in the 1980s. Yes, yes. Okay, yeah. same same guy? I, I think so. Let me, okay. let me verify. Very well. Very well. Let me verify. All right. Oh. Uh, so. so let's talk postmodernism in the late 1900s. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it is a 20th, late 20th century style and concept in arts architecture and a criticism that represents a departure from modernism and has at its heart a general distrust of grand theories and ideologies as well as a problematical relationship with any notion of quote art okay that was the definition that i found that was the smallest definition that i found yeah because it's it's a it's a squishy weird kind of like well that's modernism and it's it's after that Right is is kind of the the well okay yeah but that doesn't mean shit mm-hmm. kind of kind mm-hmm. of definition, and so if you want to try to pin it down, good luck. That's yeah yeah it's like like nailing water to a surface. Yeah, not like, even jelly. Yeah, uh, in itself, uh, it is a philosophy that is not a philosophy. Okay. Um, it's especially fun to note that one of the people most associated with postmodernism rejected any connection to it. And for the purposes of this podcast, just remember that Michel Foucault's idea of force relations mm-hmm. in which power defined as a complex group of forces that comes from, quote, everything and therefore exists everywhere. Okay. Uh, and he said that uh, relations of power always result from inequality, difference, or imbalance. Also, a mean that also means that power always has a goal or a purpose. So okay, it and yeah. and so if 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 power mm-hmm. comes into existence mm-hmm. without a purpose previously existing, mm-hmm. there's going to become a purpose for it mm-hmm. because it cannot exist in a vacuum without it. It's almost like power, according to Foucault. Yeah, it, it seems okay. to me like power is an arrow. Okay, there is always a direction that it will travel. Okay, you know. All right. Um, and and and, yeah. and just to clarify, mm-hmm. by the way, Foucault's pendulum is a a an, an artifact of physics. Oh, developed okay. by Leon Foucault. Okay, different. So guy. different guy. Yeah. Okay. It's his little brother. Okay. Pour one out or, for Lenny. Yeah. Yeah. No, I have no idea. If yeah. Really, I, I just, it, yeah. Leon, Leon yeah. Foucault was significantly earlier. Oh, but, okay. So anyway. So uh, now, uh, power co- is is a complex group of forces, right? So. Okay. It's this thing that comes from everywhere. It's it's almost like I almost want to think of it like the spores in the G.I. Joe movie. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's yeah. a very this podcast yes. kind of kind of explanation. <laughs> Ooh. Okay. Maybe, maybe I can dive deep into G.I. Joe. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. Oh at yeah. some point. That's, All right. that's not a bad idea. Why Major Blood got the shaft. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There you go. 
So, okay. Because he was a douche nozzle. <laughs> but anyway, moving on. Rehabilitating major blood in yeah. a post-Destro world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. How wow. pointy-headed could we get about that? Oh, okay. yeah. So. Just get me started. Yeah. Okay, so the he also says that, um, you know, like I said, it it therefore power exists everywhere. Okay. Um, hell, you know, George Lucas, the force. You know, yeah, that that was actually the first analogy yeah. that came to my mind. But um, you, you came up with the spores thing. Before yeah, I think I, it's a little more insidious and it, and it yeah. springs up. It's not yeah. just always effervescent. Yeah. Um, uh, now, uh, he also says that relations of power always, like I said, result from inequality. OK. OK. Yeah. So now you start to see how power is wielded when there's inequality. Uh, power starts tipping one way or the other. So if an arrow exists in a vacuum, it's not really going anywhere. Yeah, but if an arrow exists in regular air, then it's got weight to its head. Okay, okay. okay. Um, and uh, and what the the yeah. analogy that immediately comes to my mind is uh, like barometric pressure. Uh huh. Areas of high pressure, areas of low pressure. Yes. You get you get wind when you have a differential between them. Yes. You know, air molecules moving to fill a vacuum, and that wind will bolster some things and blow other things over. Yes. Yes. Um, and it wind will come from a direction. Yes. So yes, I think you're you're definitely onto something there. Okay. I think because we have human consciousness involved, that he would say that we're being way too, uh, vanilla about abstract. it. Abstract. Eh, maybe. Or or uh, yeah. Okay. I I would say he'd he'd say we're not being partisan enough. Okay. okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. That makes. And sense. I think he's right. I mean. Yeah. But no. We're, yeah. We're no. Simply but, trying to define. But the but to, yeah. to to try to figure out the 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 analogy to give an analogy to what he's talking about about the nature of power. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's it's important to to come up with some kind of a metaphor. I I dare say to he make would, it he easier would to recoil at the idea of there being. A grander abstract explanation of it because he didn't like yeah well this is true being a postmodernist yeah. it wouldn't yeah <laughs> so because power always has a goal and a purpose yes. or a purpose rather yeah uh, it comes in two forms uh tactics and strategies uh tactics is power on the micro level okay uh, so the the example that i found in the, the reading that i liked um was that uh for instance if you take a person choosing to express themselves through their fashion okay that is tactical power. Okay. Uh, your your penchant for wearing a kilt. Yes. Uh, that is tactical power. Strategies, on the other hand, uh, is macro level power, which could be the state of fashion at any given time. So back in the halcyon days of the early two thousands, cargo pants. <laughs> right. That just you know, kind of no, took over. No, no. You know what? You, what? you and I, we're dads. Cargo yeah. pants are never going to die. Oh, I'm not saying no, I have no, a problem with cargo pants. Well, yeah. okay. Let's go back to the 80s. We'll go to one that's really shitty for men. Okay. Um, pegging one's pants. Uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, late 80s, yeah. early 90s, pegging one's pants. That was kind of a macro California thing. Yeah. Yeah. Very brief, thank goodness. But there you go. So that's yeah. Yeah, macro okay. level. That's right. the state of fashion at the time, right? Okay. Uh, a better example, I think, perhaps a more visceral one. Uh, would be uh, choice of brassiere. Okay. Right? So uh, in the 70s, you have women saying, oh, fuck it, I don't want to wear a bra. Yeah. Right? Uh, the br- the burning of the bra thing is is uh, uh, apocryphal. It didn't actually happen other than yeah. as performance art. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Um, so, but in the 50s, you had three pounds of underwear on. It was clearly meant to oh, both yeah. display at a grotesque level and control. control. 
Exactly. So yeah. I There's, would say that that like, state... Like the level of cantilevering and, yeah. and, and rigidity involved yeah. in, in... I mean, you know, of course, I've never actually seen one of the artifacts from the era, but the, mm-hmm. the photographic evidence... There, there was a lot. Of, there was a lot yeah. of. Yeah, there, there was a lot of like no kidding overt control containment. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, there's a wonderful there. book called the the fifties. I want to say it's just called okay. the fifties, and it opens with the discussion of uh, undergarments, not just okay. uh, bras, but also underwear and slips. Okay, it was really good. Um, but anyway, uh, the um, the the state of of fashion in the fifties, yeah. is absolutely macro power. Uh, which can uh, the man in the gray flannel suit? Yeah, exactly. You know, you know. yeah. Everybody had a uniform of some kind they were mm-hmm. expected to wear for freedom. Conformity, yeah. Conformity Absolutely. for the sake of freedom. Yes, yeah. Because otherwise, those communists will come uh, and make you all wear the same thing. Yeah, right. So strategies consist of groups of tactics, combinations of tactics. Okay. So you can, in a micro level, uh. By not wearing a bra, for instance, by going uh, into thrift stores on Haight-Ashbury and buying clothes that were on sale for very cheap uh, that were from the 1930s. Okay. You could resuscitate a fashion and shift the entire framework. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And at the same time, power is non-subjective, according to Foucault. He said it was an objective thing. Okay. I have a hard time wrapping my head around that, quite honestly. But yeah. he's, you know, he's he's essentially getting at the the and I don't want to pin this on him cuz he would reject it. But to me it feels like um he's getting to this idea of a living organism. Okay. Um a collective, a hive. Okay. Um although I don't think that he would agree Gestalt. with that. Gestalt? Yeah, the Foucault okay. Gestalt. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. Uh so, now that we've gotten that taken care of. Yes. We're ready to discuss professional wrestling and its breakdown. Oh, okay. Which was caused by the least powerful promotion in the mid-1990s. It was caused by a tactical choice, which led to a strategic overhaul and overall collapse um, into chaos from tactical chaos. Okay, so... To, to get to get a little bit more boots on the ground sure. and a little bit less, yeah, you know, scholarly, wrestling. you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we have, we have discussed previously mm-hmm. the war between Ted Turner yes. and McMahon. Yes. You know, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. because, you know, McMahon had, you know, generational, you know, had, had a generational relationship to, to wrestling. Cause, yes. You know, his dad and I think, I think his granddad yep, yep. had been, had been running promotions out of New York since mm-hmm. forever. And Ted Turner had gotten into the business as, you know, a parvenu. Mm-hmm. You know, new guy, you yeah. know, rich guy, asshole. I mean, and, and they and they, yeah. and they just hated each other. Yeah, they were. They and, were yeah. Oil and, and water. Yeah. And the and the the witch night raw war. Yeah. Was, the Monday was, night wars. Yeah. Monday yeah. night wars was was a pissing contest essentially between the two of them. It was it was no, 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 no. We're both going to keep throwing money at this shit until mm-hmm. I drive the other guy under. Not because I want to win, but because I want to make him fucking lose. I I dare say that you've you've brought money into it in a way that it didn't actually exist yet. So okay. McMahon was not able to throw money at it. He was okay. able to throw creativity at it. Okay. Uh, doesn't mean he didn't have the money. He had money, but he did not have Ted Turner money. Yeah, well, who does? Until really? Until he later. did. 
Yeah. And no, now, no. Yeah. yeah. I mean, now he's got Ted Turner money. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's like, got three Ted Turner money. Yeah. 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 So. All right. Okay. So it's it's uh, less about that and more about the structures in which they were operating against each other. Um, and, and frankly, it had less to do with their competition than it had to do with a small little upstart company in Philadelphia. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. Okay. And none of that had anything to do with anything unless we unpack what happened in the 1990s. Okay. So in 1992. Yes. As I have started at least half my podcasts, I swear. Uh, I've said a number of times. We've said a number of times. White entitlement to the White House was dealt a major blow. Yeah. One of their own, a rich white man from Texas, got in the way of another one of their own, the heir to the Reagan microphone, rich white man from Connecticut, who used his governmental connections to make a lot of really successful oil decisions in Texas. And because of that, they let another one of their own, a poor white man who went to college on his own merits, but who ultimately stuck as close to the center as he could, whom they didn't see as one of their own, into the White House. Okay, which is a really long (laughs) way of saying Bill Clinton took the White House and Republicans were butthurt about it. And because in many ways they'd kind of split the party. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. It was, I got to say, 92, probably the worst year to be a white man um, in America because look what happened. A white guy got in power again. (laughs) 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 Uh, Yeah. Um, Wow. Yeah. How to, how to unpack all of that um well, okay I've got about so 15,750 yeah <laughs> so so and, and as i've mentioned previously yeah. Yeah. of course in in 1992 i was a junior in high school sure uh later in the year mm-hmm. uh, well by the time of the election i had started my senior, senior year of high yeah. school i'd started and uh ninth ninth grade ninth grade yeah, yeah. okay mm-hmm. yeah so and and of course back when I was a senior in high school I I was still uh completely uh ensconced in in my you know very sheltered uh mm-hmm. very very uh privileged mm-hmm. uh upbringing as as well, yeah, you know you had Reaganite, crystallized sugar Reaganite. on top of your muffins you yeah, were you know, ensconced yeah, yeah. oh yeah nice nice good job <laughs> Not even mad. No. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I was I was still I, I had not had any experience with the wider world. And and Just I was the still living. Yes. Uh, <laughs> good one. Thank you. Still not mad. And uh, I, 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 I was still very much um, uh, held held to uh, the truth in air quotes mm-hmm. of of the conservative ideas that that were being mm-hmm. you know uh taught to me uh and so i vividly remember the the like i i can personally remember being angry about yeah, bill clinton becoming president you I've talked about it indignance before. at it yeah yeah just like you know how no, dare no, this no. white man come into these hallowed well, halls uh, you know it, that it, previously it, yeah. heretofore had been only, held, been by only white men. held by white men yeah you know, and and of course, in my own head, that wasn't the language that was being used, right? Because my own my own upbringing in the party wasn't overtly about race. No, certainly not. It was. It that was, was just. It the was default. overtly. Yeah, yeah. It was. It was overtly. Mm-hmm. Um, about class. Uh huh. Because of course, the first Bush was a Kennebunkport 
bush. Right. Upper, upper northeast, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and and from the Family wing money. Yeah. And from the wing of the Republican Party that was yacht Republican rather than oil Republican or, you know, nowadays God. QAnon Republican. Oh, my God. These are just all terrible Republicans. Yeah. Well, they really are. Yeah. Yeah. But okay. but they're but so it's it's what the weather was like when their family passed on the wealth generationally. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. And and but but there are. <laughs> I, I am I am going to quibble a little bit here okay. because there there is a very or there was there uh-huh. isn't anymore but there there was and commentators talked spoke about it like at the time and and have have delved into it there was already a growing growing split in the identity of the party mm-hmm. and the old northeastern Republican Party mm-hmm. was. Uh, was was the main was at that time the mainstream portion of the party and that was still recognizably similar to i'm not going to say the same as but Mm -hmm. it was still recognizably similar to the republican party of eisenhower i will completely agree because what you're talking about is a yankee mentality yes and a do what you want don't scare the horses but let's not waste the money (laughs) yeah whereas yeah the the reagan and the Texas group, they're far west. Yeah. And they're southwest. And the, those people are right shitheads when it comes to being Republicans. Well, well yeah. And 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 the and the the uh truly hardest line social conservatives mm-hmm. were out farther west. Were, yes. were the it's Texas and the, same, and the Southwest the, Republicans, yeah, like you were saying. Your Goldwaters. Yeah, yes, yes. Precisely that that's actually that's, your that's one of yeah. the yeah. far west. Um, Republicans. And and what was what was interesting was in one of the analyses that I read, and I wish I could credit the, the individual who talked about it, was if you go back far enough in our country's history, mm-hmm. what you find is the upper class in the upper northeast are descended from the Mayflower. Mm-hmm. The upper class in the south, mm-hmm. who then moved westward right. to try to expand slave slaveholding. Um, and, and, and wound up then being the religious ideology behind social conservatism. Those folks Mm -hmm. are descended from the second and third sons of nobility from the old world who came across. And so their outlook on Liberty Uh was all about, it's my property. I should be allowed to do whatever the fuck I want with my property. And a petulance with that. Yeah. I had to leave. An entitlement. Yes. Right. And so and so the schism within the Republican Party was genuinely real. Yep. Yes. Um and the the level I didn't I didn't join in it. My own family didn't join in it, but there was internecine anger. Mm-hmm. From I'm gonna say the folks in the far west about mm-hmm. well you said you weren't gonna raise taxes and then you did right my own my own father's statement was it sucks I wish he hadn't had to do it but times but he but he had to do it wait are you talking Bush or Reagan Bush oh, okay because and and yeah. I want to back up from Bush you're you're 100 right about that schism I'm I'm with you on it yeah I would back up just a bit to to recognize that the two presidents that had lasted two terms, or at least been elected two terms, yeah. since Eisenhower, were both men from California, therefore far west, yeah, and they're both fucking phonies. They are hucksters. <laughs> they grabbed onto an ideology as a means to power, okay. and that's precisely what Nixon did. 
Yeah. Um, and that's precisely what Reagan did. No matter how strong the veneer and how much that veneer looked exactly like other people's values, yeah. it wasn't. It was a means to power for their own personal... Free, because if you look at both of these men's psychology... I, oh, yeah. Well, here's, here's they the have thing, though. Deep, here's the thing. Deep insecurities rooted in their own sense of inadequacy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and the and thing they're is... Phonies. They're phonies. Yes. I, I don't mean to be Holden Caulfield here, but they're goddamn <laughs> phonies. All right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure, catcher. Whatever. <laughs> Uh, no, you're, you're not wrong. Yeah. I'm, I, I can't, I can't disagree with any of those points. The only quibble that I would make about that is, uh, you stress the idea of, of what a veneer they held up and I don't care mm-hmm. how strong the veneer is and I don't care how much they managed to masquerade like they had somebody else's values. I frankly, and, and maybe this is because I was born after he uh-huh. was alive and a force in politics, but I find it hard to believe that anybody ever looked at Richard Nixon and didn't just go like, you're so full of shit. Your eyes are brown. (laughs) Like, I mean, Reagan, I remember Reagan and I remember Reagan had the, the charisma, the charm. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to go. I don't want to go with the word charisma because everybody uses that word and it's true. Mm -hmm. But, but what it really was, was he, he genuinely did have, a level of of you know, huh, well, you know, kind of kind of work shuck. a camera and he, work a group. Yeah, he hundred yeah, percent. Yeah, and and he was a hundred. He was a much better actor yeah, than Nixon. Than Nixon was. Yes, you know, Nixon. Nixon. I think if you if you nicked the surface, uh-huh. it it became really clear real fast. Well, like, yeah. Like just, if you if just you look examine at the way, his posture and Reagan's posture. Oh yeah. Reagan gets red in the cheeks and acts like a Michigan grandmother who's been pissed off. I'm paying for this microphone. Like, yeah, yeah. oh damn, but you're yeah. still wrong, but you know, but, and everybody yeah. loops into that anger and he's able to project it. Yeah. Nixon retreats, hunches, oh, grabs oh. onto a podium and, and, and I'll never give up I'll, checkers, I'll, you know? Yeah, it's like, you know, like yeah, but and and there you go. There's the difference. Reagan would project out to the masses, yeah. and Nixon, Nixon, it was very drew much everything. One yeah. thing I used to do when I taught the the Cold War to my juniors was I would I would write an equation on the board. NS equals NS, and it was Nixon security equals national security. <laughs> wow and then i'd hit them with the quote about what he said yeah. about the sovereign and it's like yeah. motherfucker you're not the sovereign you the people it's are the, the people. sovereign right whereas you... reagan would let the people think they were the sovereign oh yeah and yeah well yeah you know and the other thing is um everybody who was a a high-ranking apparatchik under reagan mm-hmm. had done their apprenticeship under nixon yes and then after Reagan, they went on to do their master's work under <laughs> under Bush. Yeah. And then they went on to do their postdoctoral work yeah. under Bush, too. Yes. But I'm getting ahead of us here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're talking about Bill Clinton having taken over the White House. Yes. Republicans thinking, no, no, that's our house. God damn it. Yep. What are you? You you low rent mm-hmm. saxophone playing. Right. Oh, I'm going to get to that. Slime ball. You, I'm yeah. Gonna get to no, all I mean, I can, yeah. I can I can I yeah. can dig up all the all oh, the lingo. Yeah. But yeah, so so Republicans and mm-hmm. and a certain level of grassroots, you know, Republican voter types are mm-hmm. are really really deeply deeply incensed, yeah, about about Bill fucking Clinton mm-hmm. uh, being in the White House. So now, now I would say that there is a much more common thread we we need to draw through all of those Republicans. Okay. 
They're all white. Oh, yes. I mean, yes, you can find black people that voted against Clinton, absolutely, but let's be real. Oh, yeah. This is white grievance at not the right kind of white guy got in. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Because because he played a saxophone with a black band. Because he was nice to black people in the South. Because... Okay. And there are a number of... Okay. And that's there. And and whether or not you were conscious of the soup that you were swimming in... And whether or not your dad was conscious of the yeah, soup that no, was totally. being yeah. you know, forced no, I, it upon you all, I, I certainly, I it's, certainly, it's a yeah, no. big part of the recipe. Yeah, I, I think, I think there's also just the fact that in in the '80s into the '90s, mm-hmm. the consciousness that anybody who was not black mm-hmm. had of the like the phrase institutional racism. Yeah, was not on any white person's radar. Right. Unless, this is just how it is. This yeah. Is this the is like like this is yeah. this is the world, and yep. it just kind you know I mean you know do do what you got to do, man. You know, yeah. come on, and and you know the the idea like the phrase white privilege didn't even no wasn't even a thing. So certainly not amongst white folks. No, certainly <laughs> not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that level of subconscious mm-hmm. white supremacy yeah was was yeah it was that's precisely what it was it was it was it was entirely subconscious yes uh so yeah okay it, i yeah, i, I get was, i see what you're saying yeah, yeah it was the electricity that ran through your house yeah you know but i digress in 1991, James Davison Hunter, a noted sociologist and later a council member of the National Endowment for the Humanities, oh. as well as a board member of the Pew Charitable Trusts, published a book titled Culture Wars, The Struggle to Define America. And in it, this is 91, he highlighted a binary struggle in America between progressives and orthodox. The progressives, according to Hunter, view moral truths as evolving and contextual, whereas orthodoxy adherents see moral truths as divinely inspired and static. And therefore, according to this book, the culture war between the two was a necessary and ongoing tension that influences the actual carrying out of laws and practices in the American culture. It's it's exactly the, I'm going to paint with a broad brush because it saves time. Because it's not a binary. Yeah. Um, and it's not just this thing. And again, I'd say he's ignoring everybody who doesn't look like you and me. Yes. But when Bill Clinton, who wanted to punish poor people for being poor just a little bit less than Republicans, <laughs> um, and he wanted to continue to push for neoliberal global capitalism that would greatly benefit the rich, faced off against Ross Perot, who wanted to keep that capitalism in America... Balance our federal budget for reasons that he never fully explained, but it sounded reasonable on a very intuitive level. People have home budgets. They want to balance them. Yeah. They think that that allegory fits. And George H.W. Bush, a patrician who ran largely on a more of the same campaign that had seen Reagan to a landslide, as well as a, well, what, you want to be that obvious? Primary campaign against Pat Buchanan and <laughs> David Duke. Yeah. Pat Buchanan, though. That fucking guy. So... <laughs> He ran to the right of the patrician party wonk millionaire and to the right of the populist authoritarian millionaire. So when he lost the primary against the incumbent, and I'm still not sure if he did it 
so that he could pull them to the right or actually get the candidacy or given his behavior thereafter to set himself up as a forever pundit and uh, for an as not yet uh, as yet not existent news network dynamic that would traffic as propaganda arm for the government when a populist millionaire finally did become president. He gave a famous speech that I referenced heavily in the episodes of 58 through 60 of this podcast dealing with the NWO. Yes. More wrestling. Yeah. Um, yeah. Pat Buchanan was a shit lord. Yes. Um, and and I genuinely think um, it was it was a combination of one and of not one of mm-hmm. two and three. I don't think he wanted to shift the conversation to the right. Yeah. I don't think he was. I don't, th- I don't think he was actually ideological in that way. I think he I was, you, he yeah. was, he was about Pat Buchanan Yep. and he either wanted to get the nomination or set himself up to be a forever pundit. Yeah. Um, either way, empowering himself. E- either, either way he, he yeah. was either, you know, in the running to be president and, or, uh, he was going to be in a position to be able to, you know, get on the news all the time mm-hmm. as a conservative. Yeah, you know, here's a conservative that makes good copy. Yeah, yeah. Only not a conservative. He's a fucking reactionary. That's a really. I like that I, because I don't think at that time he was a fascist, but I do think he was a reactionary. I oh think yeah, that he's occupying that space between fascism and and, and, and rightist. Yeah. 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 And and as and as somebody who in in a sane political system would be considered a rightist, um <laughs> I as no, opposed you, to you, as opposed to being, you know, a socialist weirdo. No, you'd be considered a conservative. Okay. I don't think you'd be considered a rightist. Okay. Well thank yeah. you. Uh but as, as somebody who, who in, in any other developed nation in the world oh, yeah, you're would the right. be would yeah. be considered a conservative. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, the, the people who, who were claiming at the time that they were conservatives, like, like with a capital C making a big deal about it, that's really where the beginnings of the, no, 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 you're not actually conservative. Right. You, you want to drown government in the bathtub. Yeah. That's not conservative. You're, you're a fucking reactionary. Yes. And then since then, mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we actually had a conversation kind of about sort of about this, mm-hmm. uh, on, on Facebook earlier today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're, we're right now, uh, staring down the, the barrel of, uh, a very likely, uh, gu- gubernatorial recall, yeah. uh, here in California and, and what, uh, Damien and, and another friend of ours lamented was that, uh, you know, the, the Democrat establishment in the state of California, uh, basically abuses the daylights out of out of anybody who's farther left than they are mm-hmm. because they know they can get away with it because, well, what are you going to do? Vote for those guys? Right. You know, and and my my statement there, I think, is is uh, applicable here mm-hmm. is, you know, the part of the problem that we have is we have this uh, dichotomy within our state. What I said was I blame the Central Valley in Orange County. Mm-hmm. I also blame Los Angeles and San Francisco. Right. And and that's not to say, well, you know, they're all the same. You know, they're just as bad. The left no. is just no, 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 no. No. The, the reason the reason I say that is the the wing nut right wingers are mm-hmm. in Central Valley, Central Orange Valley County. and Orange County. They're two different brands of yeah wing nuts. The poor wing nuts. The poor the wing, nuts wing nuts and the wealthy wing nuts. Yeah. But you know, and and they're they're all right of California's center. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then in San Francisco and LA, we have this vast urban, mm-hmm. uh, very diverse, mm-hmm. very uh, socially liberal set of populations who push for mm-hmm. a more socially liberal agenda, push for more, you know, government intervention, all those kinds of things, very mainline Democrat kind of stuff. And the thing is, they they have historically, over mm-hmm. the course of the last 30 years, done it in a way that uh, very frequently, and I know I'm guilty of this, we, even before QAnon, even before the the Trump administration sure. and all the all the overt craziness that was involved there, there was kind of a well, you know, it's the flyover part of the state. Well, right. you know, there are a bunch of guys down in Orange County. They're all yeah. rich assholes. What yeah. it, there's there's this there's this kind of well, you know, they're assholes. What are you going to do? Right. And 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 the knee jerk reaction because they're conservatives and it's all about a knee jerk reaction from mm-hmm. that is we'll we'll fuck you. Sure. Sure. You know, and and this and this knee jerk defensiveness and this knee jerk aggression, mm-hmm. which then feeds into all of us going, yeah, well, I mean, you know, yeah. fucking look, man, right. come on, which then, you know, yeah. so it creates it creates a feedback loop mm-hmm. in our own version of the culture war. And the Democrat okay. and the Republican Party has or politicians within the Republican Party have capitalized on that by going, well, shit. I can ride this sense of grievance all the way grievance all the way to the state house. That's true, and and even farther than that. And then the Democrat, the mainstream Democratic Party, has looked at it and gone, "Yeah, we don't need their votes anyway, so who the fuck cares?" Yeah, I I would you know, say that there is, um, you know, okay, and and yeah. and I'm not and I'm not trying to say that the level of wrongness there. No, I'm not is going equivalent there. at I'm, all. I'm actually but... going to take you a little bit to task about uh, the progressiveness of both San Francisco and L.A. Okay, both have massive homeless problems, and both have tech bros and or uncaring Democrats. Yeah, uh, making it more and more illegal to be homeless. Yes, uh, you know, you have. I mean, all of California is pulling rightward, unfortunately. Yeah. Um. And so what what we call progressive is kind of like, um, you know that skin that grows on the top of soup. Yeah. Right. That's that's kind of it. But you poke it and it goes back to being water. Yeah. That's that's kind of what's it's turning into. Yeah. Like you go to San Francisco and and I mean you have to walk in the street around the homeless encampments. Yeah. And usually you're walking around the police. Attacking the homeless encampments, yeah, who are empowered by typically a Democratic mayor, yeah. Um, and and again, what are you going to do? Vote for the guy who wants to kill the homeless? Like, yeah, yeah. So, so there's yeah, no, a lot you're of not. You're yeah. totally, yeah, no, you're you're not. You're not wrong. Yeah. But you know, I I I my my thesis regarding the mechanism mm-hmm. of it all, I yeah. I stand behind, and and I think that's the the very beginnings of that. Buchanan was indicative Mm -hmm. of that process really getting underway yes now suffice it to say white people were hella mad that white people lost to white people who said that (laughs) non-white people didn't deserve it as bad as they'd had it in the past and buchanan's speech uh really crystallized and codified along the term along with the term from hunter's book the culture war it simplified the struggle into a simple binary for centrist liberals, and it excited the white aggrieved classes who started voting redder and redder, and more and more consistently. 
1992 was, in many ways, the very obvious surfacing of the cultural chaos that white people loathed, and that's what changed wrestling forever. Oh, by the way, just in case people didn't know from the title, this is another wrestling podcast. But to explain this cultural shift, we need to take a look at a few other things. So in 1989, late 1989, a new late night talk show hit the airwaves. Simply put, this show competed with a redundant talk show hosted by Pat Sajak by aiming at a wholly different demographic, black folks. Arsenio Hall had a catchy announcer, an excellent visual intro, and a very different style than did Carson or Letterman. And again, Pat Sajak was simply redundant anyway, so it wasn't yeah, really competition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had the dog pound, yeah, which absolutely was a purposeful recollection of the experience that many black Americans grew up with in the church culture, call and response, getting in close to the people in the audience and referencing them regularly. Think about the whoop, 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 right? Oh, uh, yeah. And think about these people here. These are people who, and you know, whatever. Yeah. And, you know, you'd see it and they'd get to see themselves on the monitor. And then he'd also, you know, things that you make you go, hmm, hmm. which then turned into a hit song. Yeah. All of this is call and response. Now, this show played exceptionally well to the younger demographic as well as BIPOC audiences. He was also outwardly and culturally culturally subversive while still maintaining a fairly sanitized show. The fun, he, the fun that he poked was localized. It wasn't critical of the dominant culture so much as a light roasting. Yeah. And he really didn't push a progressive agenda so much as a hip agenda. He got called out once, actually, for not having queer folk on his show. And, I mean, it's in the middle of a, a, a I'm not going to say a live broadcast, because it was, he always recorded in the afternoon, mm, and then yeah. pushed it out. Um, but he kept it in there. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, and he got called out from the back uh, from people from, I forget, I think it was Queer Nation. Okay. Um, they called him out for not having uh, queer folk on his show. And uh, he went right at him. He's like, I have plenty of gay people. They just don't tell people that they're gay. Now, this is early 90s yeah. late 80s don't um, ask don't tell era. yeah and he yeah. kept coming back at them with arguments that a person's sexuality was a private matter um and uh kind of like you said don't ask don't tell approach uh, and he went off on them vibrantly and he set them in opposition to himself saying i am a black man i am the most minority of minority i can't hide who i am and so he's inverting what they're yeah. saying and He's not wrong. They're not wrong. Uh, and then he says, you know, you want to do that. You go get your own show. Yeah. And so now he's pulling on his own exceptionalism there. Um, and he says, you want to do that? You book who you want. And he reiterated over and over again. It's nobody's business if if my guests are gay. And he aired this seven-minute, fairly one-sided argument because he's the only one with a mic. Yeah. Now, as a young show... Arsenio Hall grabbed a different segment of celebrity. If people were in major blockbuster studio films, they typically went to Carson. Yeah. If they were in rom-coms and or zany comedies that were still studio films, they'd go to Letterman. But if they were young stars, if they were appealing to what was at the time starting to be dubbed as the MTV generation, they went on Arsenio. And Arsenio loved having over-the-top personalities. And this means a lot of wrestlers. Oh, no fewer than 10 wrestlers wow. showed up on his show over the course of four, course of five years. Really? Yeah. Okay. I had I, never thought of that, mm -hmm. but okay. Yeah. You're mm -hmm. right. All right. Yeah. Uh, in June of 1992, he even had Bill Clinton on 
which yes. helped Clinton gain a lot of traction with young folks. Oh, who yeah, otherwise got, got, got the youth vote that right. might otherwise not have shown up. Exactly. Yet again, they would have sat it out. Yeah. But here's the thing. The late night talk shows like Carson and Letterman weren't really losing audiences to Arsenio Hall. You're not going to turn, you know, you're, you're in your 50s. You want to see what Dom DeLuise is saying to Burt yeah, Reynolds. Well, yeah. You want to <laughs> see Karnak. You've seen it since you were 20. Yeah. Right? Letterman, uh, you know. Sis boom bah. Yeah. Sorry. You know? <laughs> I can't, like, yeah. One of the greatest moments in, in talk TV but ever. They, but anyway. <laughs> they were, yeah. however, uh, seeing slight shifts in their beloved staples of late night talk shows. Letterman, who'd always been a bit edgy and subversive, even had a wrestler on in the early 80s, as had Carson. Yeah. He started courting younger stars. Cor Carson, not as much. No. Because well, Carson didn't need to. Well, and in May of 92, he retired. Yeah, this is true. So then the late night folks lost an icon, <clears throat> right as Arsenio was gaining a lot of notoriety. Mm -hmm. But don't worry, white people. Jay Leno came in and tepid humor continued to have a place to live. Okay, so real quick. Yeah. Since, since Jay Leno got mentioned... Yes. I, I heard somewhere recently that, like, n th there are only a couple of comics that everybody in comedy hates. Mm -hmm. Jay Leno is one of them, and Carlos Mencia is another one. So Carlos Mencia is hated because he steals material. Okay. Jay Leno is hated because he's so successful at knowing exactly what the lowest common denominator is. Okay. And, yeah. Um, okay. Now, I, I think people more hate him professionally than they hate him personally. Most people hate Mencia personally and professionally. Okay. Not because they've even had a personal relationship with him, but like you don't steal jokes. Jokes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So that's as far as I could tell. All right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I just, I had a stand up yeah. comic yeah. here in front of me. I figured I'd, <laughs> I'd ask about it. So, yeah. Yeah. So, Arsidio Hall. Yeah. The whole, the whole late night war mm -hmm. because Carson left and mm -hmm. like, Letterman, Letterman thought he had would get thought it, he was going to yeah. get it. And yeah. then, yeah, yeah. Centers on the white folks and it's yeah, well, white yeah. audiences that care about yeah. that. Young audiences don't give a shit about that because they're all watching Arsenio. Yeah. Because Arsenio, like, he had this cool thing. It was like, it's not, it wasn't quite a scrim, but it was like this big thing. And it looked kind of like um, a sweater from the 90s yeah. mixed with stained glass. And it would just slide to the side. Yeah. And he's standing there with his legs kind of outstretched, making his body look like an A. Oh, yeah. And you've yeah, got and, the announcer. And, the, yep. and, the, and, his, and his hands, hands down, down, his head down. Right. And then he'd look up, look and, up come and boom, with the finger oh, up. Yeah, and, yeah. man. It was yeah, awesome. no, it was amazing. So what's noteworthy here I was is... really sad when that show went off the air. <laughs> I still am, like, oh, thinking well, about it now. And again, back. and again, and again, mm -hmm. remember when he came on the air, mm -hmm. I was still, you know, little, you know, uh, uh, Reaganite. Little you know, Eddie baby Republican. Ed. Yeah. Um, but, but even I thought he was... A hell of a lot cooler than yep. all those other guys. I always thought Letterman was an asshole. I've never, never gotten on with Letterman. Everybody talks about his subversiveness and stuff like that. And it's just like, he, I've liked him now that he's older. Mean. Yes. Yes. Um, I did a bit of a deep dive into him oh, okay. and he's just not, not nice to the women. Like as he's aged and now that he has a child, I uh -huh. think he's chilled out. Okay. But yeah. Okay. So, despite the relatively short run that Arsenio Hall had, um, what's noteworthy is that it had a massive impact on the culture. It legitimized youth culture of the late 80s and early 90s. And that led to the validation of a culture war that was brewing. 
Okay. You see themselves as a force now. Okay. And so now the older folks who are like, oh, God, there's a culture war. See, they recognize that they're a group. So it's so facto, <laughs> as surely as the sun must rise, right. there has to be then a war between right. us and them. And my son must fall. Yeah. yeah. Well, wait. <laughs> huh? Yeah. Okay. Well, it. and and it's like, oh, see, they're progressive. We're orthodox. We're we're the we're the 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 saucer that cools the cup. They're gonna try to reach for too much. We're nah, gonna pull them back, and that tension all... is such a comfortable uh, paradigm. Yeah. For for centrists. Oh yeah. It really because it literally is. Oh, it's this tension between the. Yeah. Two. I mean, it's Luke Skywalker's definition of the Force. You know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's yeah, yeah. yeah. So additionally, there was another reason for white people to be afraid of the impact that black and hip hop culture was having on white kids. Another specifically black influence. On April 15th, 1990, Keenan Ivory Wayans finally got his goal of a black variety or sketch show on the airwaves. Oh, in living color. And it was on Fox. Yeah. And Fox is forever to me going to be known as the best and worst of television, often on the same night. Yes. Now, his, Wayans's, was a deliberate attempt to diversify mainstream comedy. He specifically wanted black, Hispanic, Asian voices to make people laugh. And here's the thing. The establishment saw this as chaos. You've got too many voices in there. They're too disparate. They're too different. Uh, This is chaos in the same way that the established culture saw SNL 15 years earlier. Oh, okay. In Living Color often was described as, quote, raw, which is a bit of coding. A little bit. Yeah. Even its introduction carried with it a feeling of wobbling chaos, a record spinning too fast, something almost out of control. If you remember, each person who was featured on the show, they were painting the screen in front of you. Yes. They were assaulting you with color in living color. Yes. And, you know, Jim Carrey threw balls at you. Uh, somebody else, like, took uh, the the uh, a bike. D- uh, David Allen Greer took yeah. a bike and went up and down with the tracks. Yeah. Um, different people were, like, splashing paint on you. And some people mm-hmm. did, you know, wax on, wax off on you and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and But it was it was assaultive. It was like, oh, oh yeah, God, we're going to yeah. hit you with this, you know. Yeah. So there was just a, an aspect of, of, like... Oh, this is not very overtly mm-hmm. literally in your face. Yeah, literally you know? in your face. So the the opening set was a faux rooftop echoing a very urban sensibility. Yes. Uh but also very New York. Yes. Sensibility. And very New York wage earner sensibility. Yes. Because people hang out on the rooftops, you know. And there's a lot of different apartments. There's a DJ on the balcony of one building and the Fly Girls, most of whom were not white, yes. were dancing on another rooftop. And someone would often come out of the rooftop entrance, usually Keen and Ivory Wayans, to introduce the show. And so it had this kind of laid back slash chaotic yeah. aspect to it of like, well, we're going to get to this now. Yeah. Similar to Arsenio's audience. Now, eventually, most of the Wayans siblings would cease to have anything to do with the show. But I'm more looking at what the show meant in the context of the 1990s. So for the early 1990s, the parodies, the examination of race relations in America, the in-your-face rawness of In Living Color, all pushed comedy into new places, bringing new faces into the living room or separating the watching habits of the young and the old. 
Okay. Yeah, definitely separating the watching habits mm-hmm. of the young and the old. I can totally that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes. Yeah. Yep. That that intuitively makes sense to me. So while Arsenio Hall had a TV show, and while In Living Color is far more daring than SNL at that time, a number of things are happening in the news. The dominant culture is having convulsions of violence. In March of 1991, the California Highway Patrol and the Los Angeles police officers chased a man who was driving drunkenly on the freeway. And then they chased him through residential neighborhoods at very, very high speeds. Eventually, this man was cornered and his companions were made to exit the car. And at first, the driver, Rodney King, grabbed his butt and was giggling. He was, after all, drunk. This led an officer to draw her gun for fear of his being armed. But in 1992, police were allowed to de-escalate. And the ranking officer on the scene ordered everyone to holster their weapons. Then they swarmed him, claiming that he resisted arrest, and he was tasered in the chest by one officer and beaten with batons by four others. At one point, the ranking officer moves to stop everybody, claiming that he's had enough. But as King tried to get back up from a prone, having been beaten position, he ordered them to resume the baton attacks. King was struck 56 times with batons, tasered, back then it was called a stun gun, and kicked seven times. And then after this, the police subdued him. Now, none of this would have been known but for a videographer taping it. Initially, this person who took the video wanted to give it to the police, but the LAPD didn't respond to his queries at all. So he sent it to KTLA, the news station. KTLA edited some of the blurry stuff out at the beginning to show the more clear footage, and it becomes a national story. It's undeniable proof of police excess. It's right there. Your Honor, Mm -hmm. I refer you to Sony. You know, I mean, it's that simple, right? Yeah. And nurses after the fact reported that the officers involved were bragging about what they'd done, which tells me that the officers had brought him to the hospital. Yeah. The police chief, Daryl Gates, who is a special kind of prick all over. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He said, yeah, quote, I stared at the screen in disbelief. I played the one minute, 50 second tape again, then again and again until I had viewed it 25 times. And I still could not believe what I was looking at to see my officers engage in what appeared to be excessive use of force, possibly criminally excessive to see them beat a man with their batons 56 times to see a sergeant on the scene who did nothing to seize control was something I'd never dreamed I would witness. He had also stated that several of the officers involved would face criminal charges. I think it's remarkable that back then that was excessive and that Daryl Gates, the creator of Dare and the SWAT team, (laughs) as well as the man who once said that chokeholds would have a worse impact on black people because their arteries weren't like normal people's, that he was willing to pursue criminal charges on officers who were excessive in their force, which left a black man with numerous fractures and breaks, not killing him. Yeah. I think it's remarkable how far we've come mm-hmm. in a very wrong direction. Yep. Yeah. Um, in I, LA, LA, the place where like you have a dozen movies about the corruption of the LA police department and they're all true. And they're, yeah. And, LA. They're, and they're practically documentaries, if not actual documentaries. Yeah. yeah. Um, where, where their elite, anti-gang rampart unit was oh god was operation hammer drop or something yeah, like that was, yeah was 
eventually disbanded by higher authority because it turned out they were essentially another gang. Yes. Yeah. Um, the, the, the level of very clear disturbance Mm -hmm. that, that he showed when he, when he was talking about Mm -hmm. what he, what he'd seen on the tape was, I I remember was very clear. And I remember being gobsmacked mm-hmm. by the by the portions of that video that I saw. Oh yeah, um, just at, like because they're wailing away. Like there's no way you could stop that second blow. There's no way that second blow is coming with enough of a gap for you to see if he stopped moving. Yeah, and by the oh, way, yeah, no, they they were just hauling off. I mean, it was yeah. it was any it was, any man it was a who gang beating. Yeah, I mean, it was not even yeah any man who is getting beaten i would imagine is not going to sit still and lay prone he's going to move to try to tense up to defend himself and yeah. whatnot well, he's that alcohol, flinch. at yeah. the very least he's gonna flinch which is now resisting yeah you know. well, of course yeah. being 12 and running away yeah is now resisting so yeah so yeah back then apparently it was better and that's frightening. How fucked up is that? Yeah. Well, the, the police have gotten, <laughs> the police have gotten steadily more militarized ever since. Yes. Is, is, I mean, at the end of the day, that's, that's what it, the, the, the underlying issue is that we have more and more treated our police like another branch of the military as yeah. opposed to them being civilians like we are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there was actually, you know, it's interesting. You you find some some weird ways that that some some portions of the right wind up actually agreeing with portions of the left. There are mm-hmm. legitimate Second Amendment people mm-hmm. who are just as pissed off yeah. about the militarization of the police force oh, as yeah. as you know Antifa are. Yeah, because um, they're and, like, how can we keep up? Well, I mean, one, no, honestly, that's yeah, a practical well, yeah, matter. You yeah. Know? Number one and and number two, one of the one of the arguments that that I've actually seen from from Second Amendment guys is okay. No, look, the police need to stop referring to ordinary citizens as civilians because they're yep. civilians too. Yes. If you're a cop and you decide you can't be a cop anymore, you get to quit. It's a good point. You're not government property. As as yes, the, the the difference between soldiers and civilians is as a soldier, mm-hmm. sailor, marine, or you know, air force corpsman, uh, air force personnel, you you airmen. Mm-hmm. I don't know why it took me so long to figure out that <laughs> word, but anyway, uh, as as any of those as as a, as a member of any of the uniformed services of the U.S. military, you don't have the ability to go to your platoon sergeant mm-hmm. or your chief petty officer and say, you know what? Um, yeah, I'm done. I'm, I'm not right. coming in tomorrow. I'm, I can't, I just, I can't do it anymore. Yeah. This, this is not my journey. <laughs> I don't feel like I'm being fulfilled any yeah, longer by this. Quit. I just, I quit. Yeah. You, you literally legally cannot do it. You, you right. have signed away your right to quit. Yes. And so, yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, I would also say that the racism that existed back then has gone largely uh, unaddressed. Yeah. And so when you increase the militarization, you increase the separation, you actually probably will see a commensurate rise in the racism as well. Oh, yeah. Um, and, oh, yeah. yeah. And, and, the, and the shifting of the Overton window in mm-hmm. the population at large toward 
authoritarianism authoritarianism and allowing police Mm -hmm. more and more discretion allowing them to get away with more and more i mean i'm sure if we looked at statistics the rate at which people are shot dead by the police has increased dramatically since then you know i mean you know i just yeah there there are so many things about that incident that that sadly should have been a bellwether Mm-hmm. but weren't yeah now we're looking back going like that that's better than dying so like what and the by the way that the was 91 yeah march of 91 yep so that's 30 years ago yeah last month yep so neither arsenio hall nor in living color would touch the subject at least that i could find until a riot the riots happened the next year yeah And when the riots happened, Arsenio was recording his show, but the riots were literally ongoing because he's recording in the afternoon. Uh, His guest, Courtney Cox, was a no-show. Yeah. Um, But he did have Mayor Tom Bradley on as a guest. Tom Bradley, the first black mayor of L.A., if I recall correctly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, He also opened with a speech by MLK, which was interspersed with the footage of the L.A. riots. Uh, of April of 92. I found that a little jarring. I know what they were going with, and probably at the time it worked. Mm-hmm. But looking back 30 years later, I'm like, nah, yeah. Oh, well. Yeah. It, it's it's what happens when you have, you know, TV producers. Yeah. You know, deciding. Trying to be profound. Yeah. You know. And, yeah. and So the jury had acquitted all four officers of their charges, despite having clear videographic evidence the city yeah. erupted in riots, partly due to the king beating verdict, but also due to the frustration and distrust over the possibility of justice over the killing and assault on black folks, such as King, as well as Latasha Harlins. I'm not going to get too much into Latasha Harlins, but essentially she uh, she was a 13 or 14 year old girl who was shot point blank by a Korean store owner. Uh, after an altercation between the two of them over the price of something. Yeah. Um, and her killer's sentence was very, very light, and people appealed and said, no, make that heavier. And that sentence uh, being so light was upheld one week prior to the verdict of the king beating. Okay. So you've got a lot of coalescence here. Now, what's yeah. notable about Hall's show at this time was that it was contemporaneous with the riots. Arsenio also asked Mayor Bradley, quote, What do you tell young teenagers, black and white, around the country about our system that appears right now not to be working, our judicial system? And the mayor responded that the justice system had never been just fair and balanced. Wow. Yeah. Uh, And a late night talk show is calling out all of that. Appealing to young people and naming the system as broken and needing change. And Arsenio Hall linked the economy to what was happening as far as the looting went. Okay. So much as quoting one of the looters. Like, yeah. you know, why are you looting? It's free. And he's like, <laughs> uh, economically, it's it sucked here for a while. The riots themselves were six days long. 63 oh, yeah. people dead. Oh, convulsive. 2,383 injured. One th- or 12,111 arrested. Over a billion in property damage in 1991 dollars. Yep. Of those killed during the riots, two were Asian, 28 were black, 19 were Latino, and 15 were white. No law enforcement officials died during the riots. Mayor Bradley said on the day of the verdict, he said this, quote, Today, this jury told the world that what we saw with our, what we all saw with our own eyes wasn't a crime. 
Today, that jury asked us to accept the senseless and brutal beating of a helpless man. Today, that jury said we should tolerate such conduct by those sworn to protect and serve. My friends, I am here to tell this jury, no. No, our eyes didn't deceive us. What we saw was what we saw and was a crime. We must not endanger the reforms that we have achieved by resorting to mindless acts. We must not push back progress by striking back blindly. That was a mayor of the third largest city in the country, or second, based on how Chicago's doing that year. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> of the wow. country saying that the jury done got it wrong. Wow. The yeah. As- the assistant police chief of L.A. stated that this was an incitement to riot because, of course, the assistant police chief said Yeah, that. well, yeah. The police specifically pulled back from almost all areas where rioting was occurring, too. During the riots, Reginald Denny, you might remember him, he was pulled from his truck. He was beaten and kicked and had a cinder block thrown into his head by four black men. Yep. I do remember that. The glee and celebration that accompanied his near-fatal assault was all captured from above by a news helicopter. There were no police in sight, as they'd pulled back from Florence and Normandy prior to that. Yeah. What people later would forget about this incident was that it was also four black residents of the area who helped him get the medical attention that saved his life. Yes. So were the doctors who worked on him. Denny himself tried repeatedly to remind folks of these facts. Now, by the next day, the LAPD started trying to contain the violence and after a full day of fairly non-responsive activity. Famously, Daryl Gates went ahead to go to a fundraiser on the first night. By day two of the riots, the California National Guard were mustered, though they took another day to actually get there in any numbers. And that's partly because they loaned out their equipment to other people. Yeah. Then President George H.W. Bush declared that, quote, anarchy would not be tolerated. And this is, in many ways, the defining gulf in what would come to shape the 1990s. Order, establishment, traditional values, and ultimately whiteness on one side, Chaos, anarchy, radical change, urbanness, the youth, and not a little blackness on the other. Okay. You have an acceptable, established, traditional violence on one side representing order in the police. On the other side, younger, more chaotic, more dangerous to the establishment violence without the rules backing it up. How much difference is there between Reginald Denny getting beaten down and uh, Rodney King getting beaten down? Four on one, four on one. Okay, now this one was more, uh, the, the, the King beatdown was more uh, ethnically diverse because <laughs> that doesn't make it better, though. Yeah, no. You know? Yeah. Uh, and also it was more organized. Yeah, it was done under color of authority. Right. Uh, whereas this one was filmed from above by the news. Yeah. And and don't get me wrong, there was glee in it. You know, the, the one guy who hits him, he does like a touchdown dance. Yeah. Now, he has his own story, and I did a deep dive on that, but I didn't want to get so yeah, lost yeah, in all yeah, the yeah, details yeah, yeah. here, but it, it's really quite fascinating to see why he was acting the way he was considering what he had done previously and what his mm-hmm. brother had done previously. But, uh, you've got the police attacking a man and, yeah. and leaving him near death and then celebrating about it later, bragging to each other. And you've got these four men not trained attacking yeah. a man and leaving him for death and celebrating at the moment. Um, 
this kind of violence didn't have the rules backing it up, basically. Yeah. If it, if only it were a, a con- conversation between order and anarchy, though. And it, but the problem is that it wasn't. Again, that's a wonderful binary to paint over it. But there was, it was more of a struggle of dominant and white older culture to maintain its dominance. It's this, okay. It's a struggle for status quo against yeah. a demographic shift. From 1980 to 1990, white folks and black folks increased in this country along similar trajectories. Uh, but the increase among Hispanic and Latino folk went up nearly 60% from 80 to 90. Yes. Uh, the age difference was holding fairly steady, around 26 to 27% of the population staying under 30. Uh, and the population over 60 was holding steady, around 19%. So there's no real changes in those demographics. But there was a hardening tension surrounding how the old felt about the young and how the establishment felt about their hold on power. I would say okay. the young have always felt the same way about the old. Yeah. So there's no change there, but the, the old yeah. are really clamping down. By 1990, the baby boomers were stepping onto the main stage, and their pen- parents' generation was beginning to exit stage left. And I think I'm going to stop us there because that's one riot on this coast. And in the next episode, I'm going to talk about another riot on the another east coast. coast. Holy crap. So, yeah, it's uh, we'll get to the wrestling. Uh, eventually yeah eventually eventually but you know i gotta set the stage so uh so far uh do you want to just bounce out of it and come back to the gleaning like maybe after the fifth or sixth episode of this (laughs) or (laughs) oh god almighty (laughs) batman all over again oh no at least batman like had some optimism to it um I kind of I do I do want to say mm-hmm. while we're while we're here before we get into the next episode mm-hmm. I had forgotten the details yeah of the Rodney King mm-hmm. riots uprising whatever word you want to use mm-hmm. um and what I keep going back to mm-hmm. like talking about it thinking about it in my own head um, a lot of, or a number, maybe not a lot, but, but a number of my classmates, mm-hmm. uh, who were from the same demographic as me, middle-class white guys, right. Um, had very visceral reactions to seeing what, what happened in LA. Mm-hmm. And it's only looking back on it now that I realize how much uh, racial bias and how much, uh, yeah, just just how much uh, uh, subconscious racism Mm -hmm. was involved in those responses. Uh, was because one one of my one of my friends who I, I now haven't been in touch with for years and years um I remember he he made a point of saying well you know in the video when he was getting up you know I can see how you know a cop might have thought you know when the one guy hit him and oh there was that so pushed many, him yeah that pushed him in a direction that you know maybe the other guy you know didn't so much didn't benefit pay of the attention. Doubt. Yeah, and and, and people were talking about he, he was high on PCP, and they thought that he was. It's like he tested yeah, negative for that. Like, and, you know. Yeah, no. Um, and and just the fact that 
our collective consciousness mm-hmm. as progressive leaning mm-hmm. white people mm-hmm. has shifted. And part of that is life experience. Cause of course, you know, I'm 46 now and I was, you know, right. 17 at the time. Right. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, the, 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 just the fact that again, the very idea that, such a thing as white privilege existed wasn't on the mm-hmm. radar mm-hmm. of anybody in my neighborhood. I mean, you know, it wouldn't right. be, it wouldn't be for another 25 years right. before I, before I heard the phrase mm-hmm. and just the good old days really fucking weren't. Well, no, they, you uh, know, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, and I don't know, if our generation is able to feel that way about the good old days weren't Mm -hmm. because we have the advantage of so much video record and so much, there's, there's so much media still floating around out there that we can regularly be confronted by. Oh, it was God. Yeah. I thought that was funny as hell when I was 19 and Mm -hmm. Oh, I need to go apologize to some people like, <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. You know, the, the being confronted with our own cringe from, yep. from that time is something that, you know, our parents didn't ever have to do. No. Cause the when home videos age. that they had were, there were no sound to them. Yeah. At the very least. Like, yeah. My yeah. mom regularly, not regularly, you know, every few years she'll watch like home videos and she'll yeah. just like call me up and apologize again. Yeah, she's <laughs> like, I was mean to you. I was so mean. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know. Well, and good she's that like, you recognize right that. On video, you know. and I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, well, you know, you know, yeah. And 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 you know, before our parents, of course, you know, uh, my my folks are tail end silence. Right, uh, yours are boomers. I'm pretty sure my dad is a silent. Okay, yeah, he was born in '43. Okay, so yeah. Um, but you know, their their generation never never had to deal with that we right. we on the other hand so for them it was mm-hmm. well you know i remember when i was 12 and i could yeah. go nostalgia down got to be this. nostalgia y- yeah and yeah. for us nostalgia is you know really great right up until you watch it and you're like oh ah, damn it yeah. really i thought i was just you know, being edgy yeah i <laughs> <laughs> was a real douche nozzle yeah. yeah you know um and 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 i think that's that's my biggest takeaway is the fact yeah. that we're talking about that that time period in our lives just shaking my head at like i'd like to go <laughs> back to 17 year old me and my snot nosed you know buddies sure. and be like you don't have any idea about the lived experience of fucking anybody yeah. like you don't even have any idea of your own lived experience yeah because you've only been on the planet for 17 fucking years well i would also you say know. that your 17 years were allowed to be and and i'm including myself in this as well okay my years i'll just put it on myself actually i don't need to assault you with this um but my years <laughs> i was allowed to be self-involved narcissistic and going through my own bullshit because I never really had to worry about the police. Yeah. I never really had to worry about, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, I'm talking about my teenage years, my formative years. Right. Um, I never had to worry about holding on to a receipt as I walked out the store. Yeah. Stuff like that. And my my friends and I in high school, Mm -hmm. 
uh, would run around after dark in mm-hmm. my friend's neighborhood with with squirt guns. Yeah. Regularly. Yes. Like without even thinking about it. Yep. The one time we had a scare was mm-hmm. when uh, we didn't we didn't have an encounter with the police. Mm-hmm. We had an encounter with a group of of individuals who couldn't see us clearly uh-huh. were themselves probably not up to any good. Mm. And yeah, we got we got chased pretty dramatically. Ah. Uh, and that was one of the most terrifying moments of my entire life. Um, we, we used to go on to high school campuses. They might have just been fucking with us. I don't know, but I, I my adrenal glands didn't didn't know the difference at the time. We used to go on to high school uh, campuses and play tag at night. Yeah. And the police caught us once as we were walking to the high school campus. So where, where are you going? Now, this is in Moraga, California. Okay. Okay. A place that like makes Walnut Creek look poor. <laughs> okay. Okay. Got it. Uh, like they'll send their kids to Walnut Creek to see what charity looks like. Wow. Like this Moraga. Okay. Holy shit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, the police stopped us. And like, where are you going? And quick thinking, I was like, oh, we're going down to Nation's Hamburgers to get some water. I'm thirsty. Figure it's very specific, kind of oddball. They're going to leave me alone. And then they're like, well, we think that, you know, you might be prowling. I'm like, how would I be prowling? I'm not even walking. Like, I just got mouthy as fuck with these cops to wow. the point where they they told me that I said something. And you know me when somebody tries to gaslight me. And yeah. I, I went at them a little bit. I'm like, no, you said. And I had my finger in their face. And they put their hand not on their gun, but on their nightstick. And, you know, and my friends are like, Damon, just come, come Shut come the fuck up. Dave, come that was get my experience. And I was <laughs> indignant at being <laughs> gaslit. Well, so, yeah. So. Because, yeah. you know. And and yeah. here's the thing about all of that was that um, one of the reasons I was allowed to be so painfully mediocre uh, <laughs> and so, so painfully... Uh unaware of the rest of the world and its workings was because in the 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 soup in which i was cooking it was mostly potatoes yeah you know yeah there there were hardly any vegetables in there yeah Yeah. um i don't know if that metaphor holds but you get the idea i get yeah okay yeah uh so uh starchy and white very starchy very white yes uh we'll, we'll stick to that um, and so how could I have heard? Other it wasn't really a soup so much as a chowder. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Corn chowder at that, yeah. you know? So anyway, yeah. uh, you got stuff for people to read this time. Um, I'm going to highly recommend anybody who's following the podcast, uh, read up on Dune, the original oh, yes. novel. Uh, because as I mentioned in our last episode, uh, when, when we get done with this epic, whenever mm-hmm. that winds <laughs> up being God help us both, um, I'm I'm gonna start educating uh, Damien on the on the classics of the canon of literary quote. I like it. Unquote science fiction. Uh, we're gonna start with that one. Okay. Uh, and uh, so if you if you want to be kind of up on that, I very highly recommend uh, that you read Dune by Frank Herbert. Um, yeah. So that's that's my big recommendation. Okay. How about you? Well, I'm going to recommend Twilight, Los Angeles, 1992. Okay. It was a one-woman play. Oh, okay. And I saw it on TV. It was like on, on PBS at one point. Um, or at least they, they showed like the development of it. Okay. And the woman's name is Anna. And I don't know her middle name because Latin fucks me up. I'm going to pronounce all the letters. Diaveri? 
it could be Devere. It could okay. be Diavir. I'm not sure. But Anna Devere Smith. Uh, I think it's just Devere. Devere. Fair enough. Anna Devere Smith. Um, and what I loved about it was that it showed us the process. She interviewed over 300 people about the riots, including Daryl Gates, Maxine Waters, a nameless juror on the Rodney King trial. Um, she, I believe she interviewed, um, oh, I want to say she interviewed Charlton Heston. She interviewed, uh, and she interviewed like some round table discussions, including some activists and Daryl Gates at the same time. And they start going at it and, and she's, and, you know, and, and he's like, after 400 years of slavery, you're going to, he's like, Oh God, with that. And she's like, you know, one thing we're not going to do here is disrespect each other. And she was kind of tone policing uh, the activist, but she was looking at at Gates. Um, but it's a one woman play, and she plays all the characters. Obviously, uh, she learned Korean specifically to say some of the dialogue that some of the Korean people oh, wow. uh, in the in the riots experienced. Um, it, it it is a phenomenally uh, pathos laden play. Okay, read it. Um, okay. Go find a version of it that you can find on on screen as well, because it's it's really good. So that's what okay. I would recommend. All right. So, all right. Well, where can people find you on social medias? Uh, I can be found on the Twitter machine at eh Blaylock. I can be found on Instagram as eh Blaylock, and on the Twitter as Mister. Uh, not Twitter. Sorry, on the uh, TikTok as Mister Blaylock. Uh, and we collectively can be found at Geek History Time on the Twitter machine. And where can you be found, sir? Uh, you know, on-air meeting, I think from now on, we'll have me go right after you because the show should be the last thing. There. That makes sense. Yeah, after 100 plus episodes, we just maybe, figured that maybe out. Maybe we ought to yeah. do that. But yeah. anyway, still, uh, as of this episode, you can still find me on Twitter at Harmony, two H's in the middle. Uh, you could also find me uh, at the same address on the the the, the Instagram. Yes. Um, and uh, that should be enough as far as the social okay. media is. You can also find me on iMacPun, twitch.tv slash iMacPuns. Okay. Uh, and twitch.tv forward slash uh, uh, capital punishment or capital puns um, for the various shows that I'm on. So go give those a look. And it usually you can watch the previous episode. Uh, and and really enjoy that. So Very cool. That'll do. So, all right. Well, for a geek history of time, I'm Damien Harmony, and I'm Ed Blaylock. And until next time, keep rolling twenties. <laughs>